Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. Say hi, Darcy. Hello, hello. So how are you doing in all of this quarantine stuff? I I actually tweeted this last night when I was up at 3 a.m. because time means nothing. Um, right. I've reached like the existential crisis part of the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not funny, <laughs> like if, but it's like, really? <laughs> well, but it's like, I feel like there's so little I can do. And we're seeing like the protests and the people that want to get back to work. And of course, I want to be able to like reopen the economy and everything. But I feel like... I don't have any power over the situation. Like I can stay home, but that doesn't mean somebody else is gonna, is not gonna, you know, is gonna stay home, and they're not going to risk my family members, or you know, like they're not going to risk other people. And it's like, okay, do I support, you know, go to restaurants and support local businesses, or do I stay home? Because if I stay home, that means these people aren't having to go out to work and. Like, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what to do anymore. Like, I want to help, but also I have no power. So, um, Do they have a reopen date for your state? We are doing like a soft reopen right now, oh. which I think is a terrible idea. It's, I, I don't exactly know the details of it, but it's like restaurants can be open 50% capacity and like stores can be open 50% capacity, but like places like Target and why you went to um, the grocery store yesterday and they said they had a sign on their door that said, by emergency order, you have to have a face mask to enter the building. So I'm like, why are we reopening? Mm. (laughs) Like if you, like they hadn't had that up until like I saw it yesterday. So it's like, why are we trying to reopen when we're it's getting worse well, apparently evidently i mean the face mask thing is a costco thing as well and a couple of other mm-hmm. places are now requiring you to have one of those before you enter but to be perfectly honest with you if i have to wear one of those in order to reopen the economy i'll wear one like um i'm cool right. with that i really yeah want stuff to reopen and i know you're yeah. like oh flatten the curve and we we're not through this but like People need to be able to work for their sanity, for their income, for a lot of stuff. So Mm -hmm. if we have to take extra measures to be able to allow those people to get back to work, I'm all for it 100%. Whatever you need me to do so that these people can begin to make income again, so that they can pay their employees and make ends meet, I'll do. If it means that those people can start, you know, getting money coming in again so they can support their families and their businesses. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess I my I'm concerned that just wearing a face mask in public isn't sufficient. Like we just I just we just don't know. You know what I mean? So like if that is the answer, cool. I'll wear a face mask every day. I'm just not convinced that's the answer. I guess it's kind of so my, it's, like, it's interesting. Like we've been looking and keeping an eye on the Disney situation because mm-hmm. we have a vacation planned in June that's already been like on the books for like six months mm-hmm. now. And we're kind of look, keeping an eye on it to see if they're actually going to be reopening it. And there's some that say, oh, it's not going to reopen until next year. And there's some that say, oh, it will reopen in the summer. And some of the measures that they would do in order to reopen were face masks for every person. Mm-hmm. Lines, you have to be six feet apart in the line. And um, they'll have hand sanitizer at the beginning and the end and the middle of every ride. And then they will have people cleaning for, like, much, much more than they do now. They'll be wiping down railings and, you know, doorknobs and handles and all that kind of stuff, um, which will mean a whole lot more work for a whole lot more people. But Mm -hmm. 
at the same time, they will only, they'll, they'll phase it in, I guess, like 25, 50, and then 75% of park capacity until the coronavirus is eliminated or something of that yeah. nature, which, you know, uh, for people like us who have timeshare and we've paid money ahead of time and now we can't use it, but we still have to pay for it. Or the people that have, you know, like, um, annual passes granted, they've, stopped the annual passes so that you don't have to pay Mm -hmm. anymore but it just seems you can't do that with the timeshare and with some of the other things so it just seems kind of annoying that we're unable to use that and we should have some sort of priority because we've already spent money to ensure that we have the space to be able to use it does that make sense it does so if i have to if i have to wear some face masks and gloves and anything else to go on the rides and to go reopen the park let's do it yeah I just hope that that is the answer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's only one way to know, and that's to do it, unfortunately. Yeah. And the park is saying if you're sick and if you're high risk or if you're whatever, don't come. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just, it is what it is. If that's what they have to do to be able to, because the tremendous loss of income and the tremendous like impact on families and people that are dependent upon that to survive is, I think it's going to be catastrophic Mm -hmm. if we don't start doing something and and whether that's opening things back up, whether that's providing some sort of alternative income, I don't know. Right. But I think that there is going to be catastrophic and devastating effects on families and individuals that are so dependent upon that they're living paycheck to paycheck to survive. And Mm -hmm. they are not able to bring in money to support their families. They're going to having to go to food banks like that. That would be horrifying for me as a parent to be able to, to be in that situation and to think, where's my next paycheck going to come from? How am I going to feed my children? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely going to be long-term effects to this thing, both medically and economically. So, well, I've heard that there has been a tremendous spike in the opioid rates and addiction and overdoses during this time period. Uh, Because people are, I guess, just from an addict's perspective, these people are saying that isolation and, you know, not being able to contact and go out and do things mm-hmm. makes it a thousand times worse. And mm-hmm. that it really escalates a lot of addiction type issues to the point where people are overdosing because they can't handle the stress of the situation. Sure. And it's just, it's awful. Yeah. I know, I know they moved like Alcoholics Anonymous. I know they are starting to do like virtual meetings with those. Um, but I definitely can see that being like isolated and not being able to contact your sponsor or go to a meeting or those things can exacerbate um, the struggle with addiction at this time, you know, not even considering the economic hardship of not being able to go to work too on top of that, you know? So if you have friends or family members or anyone that is in that sort of an isolated situation that you are concerned about, freaking check on them. Like, make sure yeah. they're okay. Like, do your part. Like, if you're if you're stuck at home too, like, take that time to go check on some of those folks and share some time with them. Even if it's like one of those kind of situations where you have to go to their front porch and yell up to the door just to check on them. Like that. Mm-hmm. That you have to do different things during this time period. You have to adjust and you have to create different ways to do things in ways that you never thought you would have to. But if it means saving yeah. someone's life freaking do it <laughs> like, there's there yeah. should be no question in your mind yeah but, 
Anyway, um, we have a particularly interesting episode today, and this one is going to be a long one, so get ready for some really good twists and turns. Darcy, what do you have for us today? Oh boy. So, um, I literally was finished, was telling Sarah, I finished the research for this, like the minute she called. So yeah, so it's fresh on my mind. So I wanted to go ahead and do it. So we're going to talk about the Atlanta child murders. And just as a preface before we get started, sorry, I forgot to mention this before, but this, this was one of the cases that got you interested in true crime, correct? It is, um, the it, it's well the original case that got me interested was the Oakland County child killer um but mm-hmm. this is very similar to that too because there's a lot of questions about whether or not uh the person that was arrested is responsible for any or all of them and there's some questions about the evidence and so when did you hear about this case for the first time oh, though God, i don't even remember i mean i think i was probably it happened, so it happened before I was born. It was, like, 79 to 81. I was born in 84. Mm-hmm. So, like, I I probably was in college or something. I don't I don't remember a specific time when I, like, found out about this. But, obviously, I grew up in, Bur- in Birmingham, which is two hours away from Atlanta. And I went to college in Auburn, mm-hmm. which is, like, an hour and a half away. So, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about, like, culturally, I'm going to kind of throw in some personal stuff, too, just because I'm familiar with the environment kind of where this was happening, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of emphasize because I recall on many, many occasions you saying this was one of the cases that was most interesting to you. It's fascinating. We just haven't had the opportunity to do it until now, but I just wanted to know and the listeners to know why it's so compelling for you to do this case. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. It's it I know I saw like a dateline thing or a 2020 or one of those where it was the first time I had ever heard that there were questions about whether or not a serial killer actually was responsible. You know, usually when you hear serial killer it's like boom confirmed Ted Bundy, BTK, you know, all of that stuff and it's like boom we know we know he did it. This is the first one that I remember hearing about where it was like or did he kind of a thing. So that's always okay, why I was really cool. interested in it and it's a bear of a case which explains why it took so long to actually do it. So right, right. The timing though is good because there is a documentary series on HBO called Atlanta Missing Atlanta's Missing and Murdered and I would encourage everybody to watch it. It's incredible it's so well done cool so i'm gonna kind of start off and just read read about this chronologically so on july 28th 1979 the bodies of two african-american teenage boys were found in the woods in south southwest atlanta 14 year old edward smith had been missing for about a week and 13-year-old Alfred Evans had been missing for three days. So they were found together or just on the they same day? They were found day? together. Oh, wow. They were found together. Mm-hmm. And so Edward had been shot in the back with a 22 caliber gun, and Alfred's neck had been broken. So two different methods of death. Wow. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Okay. Yep. And nobody knew this at the time, but this would be the beginning of a 22-month span of black children going missing, or turning up murdered. So, like I said, there's a show on, on HBO covering this, and I would encourage you all to watch it to kind of get a fuller picture of the culture of Atlanta at this time. But 
In the late 70s and early 80s, Atlanta was on the verge of becoming the major city it is today. This was around the time that the Atlanta International Airport was opening, which today Hartsfield-Jackson Airport is the busiest airport in the world. All right. So this was a very up and coming time for the city of Atlanta. And do you know what the the major industry kind of was at that time in that area? Do we have any kind of a concept of that? I don't. I know, I mean, Chick-fil-A is is headquartered there. Delta is headquartered there. Coca-Cola is headquartered there. Not too far. So a lot of factory and industry and things like that. Yeah, and not too far north of Atlanta in Dalton, Georgia, near the Tennessee state line. There's a lot of carpet manufacturers and furniture manufacturers. Right. So it's kind of an everything area, if that makes sense. You're so close to the tail end of the civil rights era that it's like I can imagine that must have been still a little bit tumultuous to live in that area at that time. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't even say you're close to the end of the civil rights era. Like, I know that what we study primarily, you know, occurred in the 60s. But right. to actually live in the area, you'd be hard uh-huh. pressed to say that it actually ended in the 60s, Okay, you know, to grow okay. up in that area, too. So the documentary, they talk about Atlanta kind of adopting this new slogan, the city too busy to hate. And that's partially correct in that Atlanta was and is a very busy city. Like I said, the airport is the busiest airport in the world. But there was and there was more economic growth and business opportunities for the people in Atlanta. But there was also plenty of hate going around too. Like the KKK still had a very large presence. It's not too far from Stone Mountain, Georgia, which was like the headquarters of the KKK. They still have that big rock that has like the facade of the clan carved into the side of it that still is up today and i'm not going to get too much into it but black citizens of the city on the whole were not seeing the same economic opportunities as the white citizens so in that sense it still was segregated not by law but you know by economic policy in the way that you know the economic policy and the opportunities were affecting the citizens they were not not everything was equal. Well, not just economic policy, but mm-hmm. tradition and and racism within individual communities and groups of people that helped perpetuate right. that for years and years. Right. Tradition. And up to the early 70s, if not later, you still had police officers that were members of the Klan. So... I'm sure there still are some that are members of the Klan. Like, I, I just don't see no, that but. Ending. It's just probably more secret. Well, it's probably also now. not the clan. They're not as big a presence as they were um, back then. But anyway, neither here nor there. In 1973, Atlanta elected Maynard Jackson as their mayor. And he's actually the first black mayor of a major southern city. All right. And then as part of his okay. agenda, he wanted to increase the number of African Americans in the police force. So he is actually trying to increase representation in the administration of the city, but still these opportunities aren't reaching everyone. All right. So that's kind of what we're talking about. So back to these children. So Alfred Evans's body, when he was found, was so badly decomposed and he was only missing for three days, but his body was so badly decomposed that when his mother was asked to identify the body, she didn't recognize her own son. So he was actually... So is that because of the heat? Or like, how could it decompose so badly in three days? That's the thing is, I don't know. So if you have... 
I don't want to be gruesome here, but if you have open wounds, so if you have like um, a, a cut across the throat or something like that, that that skin is going to deteriorate faster. There's there's you know rodent population, there's bugs, there's things like that 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 want to go after the soft, fleshy parts of the body. Uh-huh. But I don't know how that happens so quickly. And it's okay. April, so it's warm, but it's not. It's not like August. Not crazy warm. Yeah. So perhaps he put something on the body? They didn't find anything. So like that's, that's one of the so biggest things is there's there's so little physical evidence with any of these right. cases, right? So so he was actually buried as a John Doe in a pauper's grave. And then after that, the medical examiner found Alfred's dental records. And that's how they were able to identify him. So he was buried before they identified him. All right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's unusual. Yeah. So just about a month after Edward and Alfred's bodies were found, 14-year-old Milson Harvey disappeared while he was running an errand for his mother. And the yellow bike that he was riding was found about a week later. So there's kind of a break in time. And then on October 21 of 1979, nine-year-old Yusuf Bell went to the store to buy snuff, which if you don't know what that is, it's like tobacco. Um, for right. for a neighbor and when he and he was seen actually by police at the store so they know he got to the store and they know that he left the store but he never made right. it home and he didn't live far obviously he was walking distance for a nine-year-old that's not far they're gonna get tired or bored or you know something right so and i don't think it was unusual during that time period for parents to send their kids to the store for like a pack of cigarettes oh, no, not like at all all number of different things right no not at all i i guess i was just meaning like it, it can't be too far away because a nine-year-old is going to get distracted you know what i mean right so so it's just he he went missing in a very short distance from where he lived and his mother camille organized a group of high school kids to search for yusuf because at that time, the missing persons unit for all of Atlanta consisted of one sergeant and two detectives. So in my mind, as I'm listening to this, I am hearing and immediately my mind was like, isn't somebody out there telling these people to be cautious and be aware and like not let your kids go out alone? Like, isn't there some fear? But then I realized we didn't have social media. We didn't have the news mm-hmm. like we have today. So uh, many of these communities were probably not aware that they were missing children or that they had discovered dead children. Right. And right? part of that is resources. Part of that is lack of, you know, lack of social media. But also the police were not informing the community. These were all kids that lived around each other. These were all, it was a handful of neighborhoods where this happened. It wasn't like all over the city of Atlanta. Okay. So this is a very tight knit community where this was happening and nobody was telling one community wasn't aware that the other community was missing a child. It was like isolated to that single community. So the other community wouldn't have known about the second community's missing child. So there's like all these cases, but they're separated by a short distance and a lack of. Right. And at this time, only two bodies have been found. And then there's a third child missing when Yusuf Bell goes missing. Okay. So it's still kind of early. We don't know what's going on. Right. And I think so, at that time, too, they were like, oh, he ran away. Like, it course. was a lot of, like, if any of child course. disappeared, that was the first thing that they automatically thought. He was, must oh, be he a runaway. Away. Right. Yeah. And so 
you know, because of this lack of resources or any number of other issues, systemic racism, what have you, none of the parents, like you were talking about, none of the parents of the missing or murdered children up to this point knew there were other missing children from the area until police recovered a body in November of that year. But they didn't recover Yusuf's body. They recovered the body of 14-year-old Millicent Harvey. All right, and that's when, that's when Yusuf Bell's mother learned that there was another missing child. Okay, she didn't know before this. So on November 8th, Yusuf's body was actually found strangled in an abandoned school. So his body had been put like in a cubby hole. Like if you lifted up the floorboards, his body was like what? in a cubby hole. Mm-hmm. And he was nine, so he was very small. Oh, so, God. yeah. And he, I believe he had been strangled, if I'm not mistaken. So on March 4th, 12-year-old Angel Lanier disappeared. She left her house and went to a friend's house to watch TV, but she never returned home. Okay, can I pause for a second? Was there any sign of sexual assault or this? these were just straight? It was not to my... I've read and watched a good bit about this. I've never once heard anything about sexual assault. So it's just straight murder, no mm-hmm. signs of sexual molestation or mm-hmm. assault. Okay, interesting. Go ahead. And now... now Quite a few of these children were found and they couldn't determine a cause of death because of decomposition. So there may be some evidence that wasn't recovered at the time. Okay. Right. But um, so Angel's body was found six days later in a wooded vacant lot. Her hands were bound with an electrical cord and she had been strangled. And a pair of white panties that did not belong to her were stuffed in her mouth. What? And she was the first female victim. Okay. All right. And one week after Angel disappeared, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis vanished. He would be found 11 months later in a briar patch, but due to decomposition, his cause of death could not be determined. So it looks like this person does have a preference for male victims rather than female. Yes, there's only two females. And I have to wonder if perhaps he just couldn't see well enough and maybe thought they were males. I mean, when you're at a certain age, sometimes if you have shorter hair, mm-hmm. you it can be, it can look sort of like a male. Mm-hmm. But anyway. And, and statistically pedophiles that target prepubescent children don't have a, a, a gender or biological sex okay, preference. Interesting. Because before puberty, there are very few differences between boys right. and girls. So, but okay. anyway. On April 15th, Camille Bell and parents of other missing and murdered children for, from, from the community formed this committee to stop children's murders. And Camille kind of becomes like the face of this movement. So she's a very vocal presence. She's on the media. Her involvement kind of becomes a catalyst to attract attention to the fact that there are children that are being picked up and killed in their own neighborhoods. And on May 19th, the body of 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks was found behind a bar. He had been left near a dumpster. Aww. He was actually identified by some kids that he went to school with. So, like, some young kids. Ugh. I don't know if they found him or if they were just nearby and the police asked them if they knew who it was. It's not really clear. But What the heck? That's awful. His pockets have been turned inside out like they've been rifled through. Um, and his cause of death was blunt, blunt force trauma to the head, 
but there were also four small puncture wounds to his chest, and it's believed that these were done after he died because there was no bleeding from the wounds. What the heck? Like a fork? Like what? Well, I think it's um like puncture wounds typically means to me like a screwdriver type. So somebody stabbed him after yes. this. Mm-hmm. Wow. And Chimini. a reddish fiber was found on his shoe. And this is actually the first piece of evidence for any of these murders. All right. It's just like a teeny tiny little okay. reddish fiber. And back then, <laughs> red carpet was a lot more. Oh my popular. god! Everywhere the especially, colors were gonna, especially in cars. The colors we're going to talk about <clears throat> are so seventies and eighties. But on June 9th, twelve-year-old Christopher Richardson disappeared on his way to a local swimming pool. He would not be found until the following January, and he was wearing swim trucks that didn't belong to him. Aww. And. A few weeks after Christopher Richardson disappeared, on June 22nd, seven-year-old Latanya Wilson disappeared from her apartment. So this and is, that's the second this is the and second only girl. Of the two. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is also the only one of these that was actually abducted from her apartment. So oh there was a witness to this one who said that, that Latanya was abducted by two men. One climbed through her apartment window, and he was holding her in his arms while talking to the other man in the parking lot. What? Mm-hmm. And this little girl wasn't screaming? And, I mean, wow. There's a lot of holes in a lot of these eyewitness testimonies and in some of the evidence that is presented. But anyway, moving on. The very next day, June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Weish disappeared after leaving a local grocery store. He was seen getting into a blue car with a man, and apparently later that evening, he was also possibly seen at a shopping center, and the next day, his body was found under a bridge. He had asphyxiated because he had broken his neck after, they think, being thrown over the side of the bridge. Goodness gracious. And this guy is just, whoever this person is, or multiple people, are very prolific. They're, like... Going crazy. Yeah. It's, I mean, they talk about on this, on this uh, documentary, they talk about how, I mean, it literally felt like they were finding bodies every single day. I mean, and that's when you read this timeline, that's basically what is happening. And on July 6th, nine-year-old Anthony Carter disappeared. Anthony's mom was a sex worker and Anthony often was left alone during the day Oh, they they only had like a mattress in the living room. That seems to kind of be all the, the only furniture they had. Sometimes they didn't have electricity or running water in the house. And one of the police officers who interviewed her said that she would buy McDonald's for him and then she would leave the house to work. And the, he also said the same police officer said that Anthony's mother admitted to killing her son because he got in the way of her business. But he also said that they'd never had enough evidence to charge her. So she confessed, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge her. Okay. So on July 17th, after nine children had died, Atlanta PD finally created a task force to investigate the missing and murdered children. Nine kids had to die before they were like, all right, something's going on. Yeah. And the city of Atlanta just didn't know what to do. So, like, the police brought in a psychic 
They brought in search dogs, they brought in FBI profilers, but nothing was helping. And then you have the mothers, Camille Bell, specifically going on TV and asking Maynard Jackson to issue a press release informing the city what's going on. But apparently he didn't want to alarm the people in the city. So he didn't want to scare anybody, but there's kids that are being snatched and killed. Okay. So that's kind of like the the tension that's starting between the administration of the city and the citizens. All right. So has the NAACP gotten involved or anything at this point? No. Wow. On July 30th, Anthony Terrell or Terrell and his brother Earl were invited by a relative to go swimming, but Anthony stayed behind to babysit his two youngest brothers. So he let Earl borrow his swim trunks and then he gave him $2 to get into the pool because it's like a community neighborhood pool. Right. And a little bit later, Earl got in trouble at the pool and was kicked out. So he was asked to leave. And so everybody just assumed that he made his way home, but he didn't get home. Oh. And his skeletal remains were found with those of Christopher Richardson months later in a wooded area. And he was identified by wearing the swimming trunks his brother had lent him. But remember, Christopher Richardson was wearing swim trunks that did not belong to him. Oh, okay. So. So is there some speculation that these two were together at some point and maybe interchange shorts or? No, because Earl was wearing the shorts that he left in. Okay, okay. Christopher Richardson was just wearing other shorts. And it doesn't appear that they were at the swimming pool at the same time. It appears that maybe Christopher Richardson was dumped and then Earl uh, Terrell was dumped in the same location. Okay. From kind of what I'm gathering. So this guy Um, has spots that he or mm -hmm. they um, like and Mm -hmm. prefer to dump in. Yeah. And, you know, had the mayor actually gone public with this news that there's kids being snatched off the street, maybe the lifeguards at the pool wouldn't have kicked him out. Maybe they just would have made him, like, sit on the side of the pool, you know, like in a timeout or something. But as it was, they didn't know anything. So they didn't know it's dangerous to let a 10-year-old boy walk home alone, right? And on August 22nd of that year, Atlanta PD publicly stated that they believe that the murders are connected. Okay. So about four months later. And between August and November of 1980, five more children went missing or were murdered. Wow. So 12-year-old Clifford Jones went to the store. It was his sister's birthday, and they wanted to bake a homemade cake, but they were out of some of the ingredients, so they walked to the store. Clifford wanted to stay outside to help people put groceries in their car. Maybe, like, he could make a couple bucks. And when everybody checked out and they came outside ready to go home, Clifford's gone. And he would later be found that same night, and he had been strangled with a ligature. Okay. 16-year-old Patrick Rogers was last seen walking his 7-year-old brother Isaac to the bus stop to go to school. And Patrick was a musician, and apparently he had recently met a man that he was calling his manager. And on the night that he disappeared, he was on his way to meet this manager. And on December 7th, his body was pulled out of the Chattahoochee River. Okay. 12-year-old Charles Stevens was suffocated. I don't have a lot of information about him. Aaron Jackson was asphyxiated. And 10-year-old Darren Glass disappeared also in this time and he is actually still considered missing they never found his body oh geez so 
by this time, the community, the black community in Atlanta is just on edge. There's so much tension between the community and the mayor, police chief, and Atlanta PD that it feels like they're about to come to blows, right? And then on October 13th, 1980, there's an explosion at the Bowen Homes Daycare Center, which was part of a predominantly black, low-income housing community. So there were like 23 children at the daycare at the time. If maybe more, that might, that number might be wrong. Seven people total were killed, five children and two adults. So now you have this feeling that somebody from the outside, outside of the community is coming into their neighborhoods and taking their children. And if that's not bad enough, now they're bombing daycare centers. That's what people are thinking, Okay. And eventually it would come out that all evidence pointed to just a a boiler explosion. But by the time they figured this out, the community has kind of already made up their minds that somebody is actually targeting their children. Right. And if you think it sounds a little dramatic or outlandish that that's a possibility, the city that I grew up in, Birmingham, was actually nicknamed Bombingham in the 60s and 70s because there were so many bombings by Klansmen and white supremacists. So it's not really that absurd an idea that this would happen. Of course, you know, we all know the story. Hopefully we all know the story of the 16th Street Baptist Church. That was a bombing in Birmingham. But that was just one of many. I mean, it's a story we won't get into. My dad's office was bombed, you know. So it's not so it's not really that absurd of an idea, I guess, kind of for the time. So in October of 1980... A group of over 600 volunteers gathered to search the wooded areas. And on the very first Saturday of their search, some college students discovered the body of seven-year-old Latanya Wilson. Remember, she's the one who was abducted from her apartment. Seven. Seven years old. And police claimed that they searched this area the previous day, but her remains were skeletonized. So it's probably unlikely that they had been moved to that area within a day. Right. You know? So they just didn't search. They um, said they searched, but they didn't. Right. And that adds, obviously, to the mistrust and everything like that from the community. It's like, well, you're not really doing that good of a job. You don't really care about our kids. And Latanya Wilson, her death could not be determined. So around this time... You have a group called the Guardian Angels that gets involved. And this is a group that was founded in 1979 in New York City. And they were kind of like citizen security for mass transit. It started because of all the violence on the subway system in New York. And they started getting involved and they started teaching some people martial arts and, you know, like teaching them to kind of walk walk the area and patrol the area and protect each other. And the neighborhoods where these children are going missing decided that if the Atlanta PD isn't going to protect their kids, then they're going to have to do it themselves. So, like I said, people started taking martial arts classes. They formed volunteer groups to patrol the neighborhoods with, like, baseball bats. And the community really started to feel like they had to do it themselves. There wasn't anybody else to help them. And it's just more kind of systemic issues at the time. The media called them armed vigilantes. And it really, it really seems like it was just a group of people who wanted to protect their kids. I mean, you have so many kids that are just getting snatched off the streets that are vanishing in a thin air and then turning up dead that the police can't stop it. So they feel like they have to stop it themselves. 
So it's kind of presented as this armed vigilante name is kind of a another way to put them down or you know hold them back kind of a thing for the black community it's derogatory so but i mean the thing is i would have done the same thing if children in my community Mm -hmm. you know what i mean but i don't think it would have been called Mm -hmm. or given such a negative connotation in a white community right but exactly and and people were asking why the FBI couldn't get involved. And the FBI is saying, well, we need evidence that crimes are being committed across state lines. So Maynard Jackson flies to D.C. and he sits down with Ronald Reagan. And he's like, listen, when Charles Lindbergh's kid was kidnapped, you didn't hesitate to get everybody and their mother involved. But because it's a bunch of poor black kids, you don't care. So after he did that, the FBI assigned two agents to each of the missing or murdered kids' files to help the investigation. So resources are just being poured into this now. But the murders are still continuing. 14-year-old Luby Jeter disappeared on January 3rd, 1981. He was last seen selling like car air fresheners outside the same grocery store where Clifford Jones was last seen. Okay. And his body was found two days later. He had been strangled. Not too long after he disappeared, his friend Terry Pugh went missing. And he was last seen at a Crystal's. And on January 8th, an anonymous caller actually called police and told them where his body could be found. And he had been strangled with a ligature. Okay. February 6th, 12-year-old Patrick Baltazar disappeared. And Patrick was last seen at the arcade at the Omni Hotel. And anybody who's been to Atlanta knows about the... knows. The Omni Hotel, it's a huge hotel in downtown. It's connected to the convention center, or maybe it used to be, not anymore. But anyway, one week later, his remains were found, and he had been strangled also with the ligature. And a couple days after he was found, police announced that fibers found on his body officially linked Patrick's deaths to the death of five other children. But once the newspaper published this, the bodies started being dumped in the lake, in the rivers. Okay, they also were recovered either nude or dressed only in their underwear. And it's kind of one of those things like Diane Feinstein saying they believe they have, they know what kind of shoes the um, the Night Stalker was wearing. So he, you know, gets rid of his shoes. So it's kind of like, well, this person's clearly paying attention to the news because now he is taking, you know, efforts to um, clean the body of all traces of evidence. So he's you know, undressing them and throwing them in the water to get rid of any evidence. Wow. Yeah. So 13-year-old Curtis Walker goes missing next. And his mother, Catherine Leach, was cooking one afternoon. And she told Curtis that he needed to stay inside because they're out there snatching children. And Curtis left anyway because he wanted to make some money carrying groceries for seniors. And he never came home. Two weeks later, a neighbor called Curtis's mother to tell her to turn on the news. And on the television, law enforcement officers were pulling a body out of the South River. And this was Curtis. He was wearing only his underwear and his cause of death was asphyxiation. 15-year-old Joseph Bell left the seafood restaurant where he worked to go play basketball with a friend. And according to this friend, he saw Joseph get into a station wagon with a man. And he would be missing for more than a month before his remains were recovered, also from the South River. He was also wearing only his underwear, and he was also asphyxiated. Okay. 
13-year-old Timothy Hill went missing on March 13th. His body would later be pulled from the Chattahoochee River wearing only his underwear, and his cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. So here's where things kind of start to change up a bit. So there are a group of four adult men out of five total adults who go missing and were murdered between the end of March and the end of April. 21-year-old Eddie Duncan went missing on March 20th. He was last seen either at a game room or getting into a car with a man at an intersection near the Varsity. And the Varsity is this really gross, disgusting diner that everybody seems to really think is good. Um, It's kind of like an Atlanta landmark. Mm -hmm. But anyway. So his body was later found by some people canoeing in the Chattahoochee River, not far from where Timothy Hill's remains were found just a day prior. Can you imagine? Yeah. And he was wearing only his boxer shorts, and his cause of death was asphyxiation. Larry Rogers, 20, was last seen on March 30th, possibly getting into a station wagon with a man. And his remains were found 10 days later in the kitchen of an abandoned apartment building. And they actually found dog hairs on his body. Hmm. And he was wearing white swim trunks under some blue jogging shorts. I'm not clear if these were his or not. It seems like they were. Um, but his cause of death was strangulation. Okay. Michael McIntosh, 23, disappeared on March 25th. His body was found on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. He was nude, and his cause of death was asphyxiation. 28-year-old John Porter went missing on April 10th. His body was found in a vacant lot. He had been stabbed multiple times and propped up on some steps on the sidewalk. What the? This one doesn't seem to fit, but... So, is there some thought that this is, there's a copycat out there as well? Or do people just assume this is the same person with all of this? They're, they're going to be linked. And I'm, I'll get into why when we get into the suspects. Okay. So, 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne was last seen at his apartment on April 22nd. He left to go to the Omni, which is again where Patrick Baltazar was last seen. He had recently been released from jail where he'd served time for burglary. So police at first maybe thought that his death was related to something like that, to criminal activity. But his body would later be found in the Chattahoochee River wearing only his underwear. His cause of death was asphyxiation. So 17-year-old William Barrett went missing on May 11th. And he was last seen at the local community center. A neighbor reportedly saw him getting into a white car with a man. So we're going for older folks. They're starting to get older and older. Okay, go ahead. Yep. His body was found the following day. He'd been strangled with a ligature. And his body had three puncture wounds, like Eric Middlebrooks, also done after the death. Wow. And a custodian from a nearby high school had run out of gas about a mile from the scene. And he actually reported seeing a black man standing over the location where the body of William Barrett was found before the man drove away in a white Cadillac. Huh. And then finally, 28-year-old Nathaniel Cater was last seen on May 21st at the Rialto Theater holding hands with another man. And his body was recovered from the Chattahoochee River three days later. He was nude. His cause of death was asphyxiation. And he is the last of the Atlanta's missing and murdered. Okay. So 29 people over 22 months. It's 
It's so many people. It's incredible, yeah. right? Yeah. So we broke this particular case up into two episodes because it is so, so long. So you guys are going to need to tune in next week so you can hear all the exciting details and get the rest of this amazing case. Right, Dars? Yeah, we're going to start diving into the suspects in the case. And there is more than one, so stay tuned. Yeah. Hmm. What is I going to... Spoiler alert! There's more than one. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, folks. Please tune in next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcasters. <laughs> Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>